Today we are continuing our discussion of the doctrinal statement of the church. In fact, today we actually finish what would have been the doctrinal statement of the church 10 years ago. Uh, As you are aware, uh, several, several years ago, I don't remember how many, we actually added two paragraphs to the doctrinal statement of the church. Given the world that we live in right now, the elders uh, thought it was necessary, and we added a section about marriage and how we understand marriage and how we understand human sexuality. So that will be next week's lesson. So today, we get the second coming. Can you read that? The, the man is in despair, sitting by on his bed, calling the pastor. My wife just left me. I lost my job. I need surgery, and my spirits have hit bottom. Pastor, you've got to help me. What's the difference between pre, post, and amillennialism? <laughs> there are four, three, four sections in the doctoral statement having to do with the second coming, and we're going to cover all of them today. Now, it is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, we just finished seven sermons on the second coming. So we've covered it. So we can just quit and go home and go eat donuts. Uh, I can't do that. The second thing that is interesting is that if you've been in here for a while, you realize that I have a running joke, and it did start out as a joke, but it might not be a joke anymore, that there's three things I don't teach about. Marriage, parenting, and the book of Revelation, because I don't know anything about any of them. Uh, So today we're going to talk about the book of Revelation, and next week we're going to talk about marriage. Go figure. But I do think I I need to uh, share a little personal insight, because there are those, actually, who think that I don't want to teach the book of Revelation because I may or may not agree with the doctrinal statement of the church regarding the uh, second coming. And that actually is not the case at all. I was born and raised a dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennialist, and I see no reason to change. And by the time we finish today's lesson, you'll know what I just said. The reason that I hesitate to teach the book of Revelation is that there's a lot of people who have very strong opinions about the book of Revelation, and I'm not one of those people. If you've been here for a substantial amount of time at the church, Ted has preached through the book of Revelation on numerous occasions, and when he does it, he usually begins by saying there's two kinds of people in this room. There are people who say, oh boy, we're going to do the book of Revelation, And there are people who say, oh no, we're going to do the book of Revelation. I probably fall into that second category. Once again, not because I don't believe it's true, it's just I recognize that people have very strong opinions. And uh, not to get into throwing stones and things, but if you remember, and some of you do remember, Uh, In the late 60s, Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. It was the hottest book of the time. 
I read it somewhere around that time. I know people who came to Christ because of Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth. Well, 20 years ago, I reread it, and I didn't like it at all because most of what he had said was going to happen didn't happen. Well, last year, I reread it, and uh, to be kind about it, it really ticked me off because he's very adamant about those people who don't believe the truth about the book of Revelation. Well, according to him, Jesus was going to come in the 80s. And to the best of my knowledge, he hasn't come. I could be mistaken, but I don't think I am. I mean, you start at the founding of modern-day Israel in 48. You add one generation, which is 40 years. That gets you 88. And Jesus has to come by 88. And it didn't happen. So sometimes the um, certainty that some people profess to have regarding prophecy uh, concerns me. Now, one of these days, Jesus is going to return. And a year before that day, somebody's going to write a book and they're going to be famous, but nobody's going to care anymore at that point. Just saying. But we are going to talk about the second coming. Our church, as I just said, just finished seven sermons working through Matthew, the passage dealing with the Olivet Discourse, and Jesus discussing with his disciples the signs of the second coming. And back to my joke about not teaching parenting marriage in the book of Revelation, I actually teach parenting marriage and the second coming all the time because wherever we see it in Scripture, we do cover it. So, I'm going to answer this guy's problem, though. We're going to start with about 10 or 15 minutes of a lot of big words, just so you understand the different views with regard to the second coming. And then we're going to work through the paragraphs of the doctrinal statement. And if you have any questions, go ask Cody after the service. This is the chart that has been used in all the sermons. You should remember this. It's been in the bulletin for seven weeks. There's this little sign over there that says, you are here. We are in the church age. The next thing that's on the list of things to happen is the rapture. The rapture will be followed by the tribulation, the second return of Christ, the millennial kingdom, and then eternity. That's the order that we believe things are going to happen. But remember, there's other people who have very definite opinions that this order isn't correct. So we're going to run through those pretty quick. First off, there's the whole book of Revelation. How do you interpret the book of Revelation? And there's at least three, probably four and a half, different ways of looking at this. The historism view, historistic, says the book of Revelation describes events that, for the most part, occurred during the church age. If we, standing right here, look back to 
the early church, the patristic period, the medieval period, the modern church age, we see pictures in the book of Revelation of all these struggles. So most of the book of Revelation has already been covered. There is the futurism, the view that the book of Revelation describes events that, for the most part, happen in the future. I say for the most part because chapters 1, 2, and 3 deal with the churches. And John is writing to churches that exist at that time, telling them you have problems. But the rest of the book of Revelation is of things that are to come. That is the position that our church takes. We believe in a futuristic, futurism view of the book of Revelation. Most of the book of Revelation is in the future. There is a third view, preterist, which says the book of Revelation describes events that for the most part have already happened. Well, this looks a whole lot like historism, except for the preterist view, the pure preterist view, says it's all happened. You look at the destruction of Jerusalem, you look at the fall of Rome, and that covers most of the book of Revelation. The problem with that, well, one of the problems with that, is that if you have a pure view of that, there is no actual second coming. It's a metaphor for something. It is a symbol for something, but it's not really going to happen. So there is a partial preterist view that kind of says, well, most of it took place, but there's still some of it to come. I might add, if you ask scholars or if you read in your study Bible, when was the book of Revelation written? There's basically two camps. One says it was 70-ish, and one says that it was 90-ish. Because if it's 90-ish, then John is writing about things that have already happened. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. We do not believe that as a church. Which brings us to the cartoon a while ago. Three basic views of the millennium. Now, when I say three basic views, there's all kinds of flavors of these things, but these are the three that will get you through most of the big words, okay? Post-millennialism. All of these start with the cross at one side, and they end with the return of Jesus at the other end, and the discussion is, where does the millennium fit into this? And postmillennialism says that Jesus is going to return at the end of the millennial period. Well, what is the millennial period? Well, we are going to spread the gospel. We are going to spread the truth about Christ. We are going to reform society. Society is going to get better and better. The kingdom of God is going to come on the earth before the return of Christ. Now, those of you who read the paper today or yesterday, how many of you think that's true, that things are getting better and better? 
But you have to understand, let's just take the recent old history. Let's go back to the 1800s. There was this huge rise in technology, science, everything pointed to a better future. The world is going to get better. It's going to get better and better. And the Christians said, see, the world is going to get better and we are going to bring in the kingdom of God. The first battle of the Civil War. What was the first battle besides the bombing of Fort Sumter? The Battle of Bull Run or Manassas. First Manassas, depending on if you're a Yankee or a Southerner, they have different names for it. It was right outside of D.C., and crowds of people, civilians, came from D.C. to watch the battle. Why did they do that? Because they had been taught by the abolitionist that the only thing <clears throat> preventing the kingdom of God from coming on earth was slavery. And we're going to go out there, we're going to beat those rebels, and the kingdom of God is going to come. Isn't this going to be great? But they lost the battle. But they did win the war, and guess what? The kingdom of God didn't come. Fast forward just a little bit. The temperance movement. The temperance movement believed that the only thing preventing the kingdom of God from coming on earth was booze. So they finally got a constitutional amendment outlawing the sale of alcohol, and guess what? We didn't get the second coming, we got Al Capone. <laughs> but you have to understand, the 1800s and into the 1900s the beginning of the 1900s, there was this great idea that things were getting better and better. And a lot of those ideas died in the trenches of Europe between 1914 and 1918. And if they didn't die there, they died in Dachau in the 40s in the concentration camps. And all of a sudden, people said, this doesn't look like the kingdom of heaven. There are actually not a whole lot of post-millennialists still out there. I've had a conversation with one of them, met him at a party one time, and we had a great talk, and he was a great guy. He was very involved in you know, education and trying to educate people because we're going to bring in the kingdom of God. But I just didn't see it working. Now, if you want to get off in the weeds of worldviews, with the demise of this idea of progress, the religious world abandoned postmillennialism. The secular world brought in postmodernism. Because postmodernism says, no, all of these grand schemes to fix everything, they're not going to work. That is postmillennialism. But if you read books from the 17, 1800s, and even further back, that's what they will believe. Our church is a pre-millennial church. We believe that Christ is going to return before the millennial kingdom. The only way that we will have God's kingdom 
on earth is if Christ is sitting on the throne. There is no other option. And that is known as pre, that is, Christ returns before the millennial period. The third major one, and I might add, the people who believe this hate the title of it, is amillennialism. Amillennialism teaches that we are in the millennial period right now. From when, the, uh, when Jesus ascended till the return of Christ, we are in the millennium. Now, obviously, we have to interpret millennium as a metaphor for some large number because we're, what, 2,000-plus years into the 1,000 years. Um, they don't like the word amillennialism because ah means not, and they don't like being called a name that just tells they're not the other one. But they have a name for themselves, and nobody ever uses it. So those are the three main ideas regarding the millennium. I would ask for any questions, but I don't want to answer them. <laughs> Just kidding. Now, that took care of one set of the big words. But there's another set of big words. If you believe premillennialism, which we do, then... The rapture is the next event. In fact, we'll talk about the rapture in just a moment when we talk about uh, the first section of the doctrinal statement. Uh, we had a whole sermon about the rapture. Do you remember? Uh, but there are three main views. The pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism, says that Christ comes and the rapture occurs at the beginning of the tribulation period. But if you look at that, Christ kind of returns. He comes to call the believers home, off the earth, but the second coming is really later at the end of the tribulation period. And this is called pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism. Now, the other two are pretty easy once you get that nomenclature down. There is mid-tribulational and there is post-tribulational. Okay? The distinction to be made between all of these is whether or not the church goes through the tribulation period. Whether you and I as believers are going to be here for the tribulation. Our church believes that we will be raptured, we will be taken up before the start of the tribulation period. More about that in just a moment. Those are all the big words. We're done, okay? On to the doctrinal statement. Do you have any questions about any of the big words? I'm off the hook. Can you even pronounce the big words? So if you want to really be specific, okay, here it comes. Our church is a dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennialist church. Okay? Now, if you remember our discussion about 
dispensationalism. I emphasize the fact that we do believe it because we believe it helps us understand the flow of the Scripture. It also teaches us that there is a distinction between the church and Israel. But guess what? You do not have to be a dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennialist to join our church. And not to get into the trouble with anybody in this church, you don't have to be a dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennialist to be a believer. But we do think if you take a more literal um, understanding of the Scripture, this is what the Scripture teaches. Okay? Back to the doctrinal statement. The blessed hope. We believe that according to the word of God, the next great event in the fulfillment of prophecy will be the coming of the Lord in the air to receive to himself into heaven both his own who are alive and remain unto his, until his, and remain unto his coming and also all who have fallen asleep in Jesus and that this event is the blessed hope set before us in the scripture and for this we should be constantly looking. This is what is referred to as the rapture. The taking up of believers, both dead and alive, before the tribulational period. Now, a couple of things in here that we need to make sure we understand. According to the word of God, the next event... I know that when I was younger, and we would argue about this all day long, there was a lot of discussion about whether the temple needed to be rebuilt before the time of the rapture. Because there are discussions, and we talked about them in uh, some of the sermons, that there's going to be a temple at some point. And guess what? There's no temple right now. Um, The reality is the temple could be built during the tribulation period. So the reality is Christ could return at any time. Why is that important? There is nothing that has to be accomplished before Christ returns. What does that mean? It means we need to be prepared. Do you remember the last two sermons of the seven sermons about the second coming? They were about two parables. One of them was about the ten, as Cody says, bridesmaids. For some reason, we don't like the word virgin anymore. But the ten bridesmaids, five of who were prepared and five weren't. The next one was about the giving of talents. The fact that God expects us to be using that which God has given us for the furtherance of the kingdom. And when he returns, we need to be prepared and we need to be productive. We need to be doing something. And guess what? It could be this afternoon. As far as I'm concerned, it could be in the next six minutes and I wouldn't care. Okay? Whether I finish this lesson is irrelevant. Now, 
I think it was Dr. Bailey in his sermon about the tribulation. He made a comment, which I actually agree with, totally. Christ could return right now. Or Christ could return in a thousand years, and the word of God still stands. We do not know. We do not know. We are to be prepared generation after generation for the return of Christ. So, the next thing on the list is the return of Christ to take us back home. So, uh, John 14, 1 to 3, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. If there was a major disagreement about the second coming, it's whether the second coming is going to happen. Most of our society lives as if there is no possibility of a second coming. Many believers, many of us, live as if there is no possibility of a second coming. And we as Bible-believing individuals need to take serious the fact that Christ will return. And notice what this section is called, the blessed hope. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will rise, be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. This is the blessed hope. Just as a curiosity, my all-time favorite sign for a nursery at home is 1 Corinthians 15, 51. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. <laughs> you can ask my wife about it. We had three children at our house last night. Two of them slept. This is the next event. This is the blessed hope. Why is there so much interest in the second coming? And this, by the way, I totally, 100% understand and agree with. Because we do read the newspaper. We do see the mess that we have made of the world. We do see the problems. We do see these things. And we think, maybe I can solve it. Then eh, we can't solve it that way. Maybe I, no, we can't solve it that way. And we just wish Christ would come and fix it. And the blessed hope is that someday he's going to do that. The second period is known as the tribulation. We believe that the, that the translation of the church will be followed by the fulfillment of Israel's 70th week during which the church, the body of Christ, will be in heaven. Stop right there. We, as pre 
tribulational, pre-millennialist believe that we will not be here for the tribulation. Do you remember the very beginning of the seven sermons about the second coming, Cody started with a series of questions, all of which had the answer yes and no. Sounds like the way I answer questions. And part of the the first question was, does, does this apply to us? What Jesus is talking about to the disciples. And the answer was yes and no. Yes, the reality of the second coming applies to us. Yes, the idea that we are called to be prepared applies to us. No, the part that deals with the tribulation does not apply to us. It just doesn't. And there's some pretty nasty stuff going on through the tribulation period. The whole period of Israel's 70th week will be a time of judgment on the whole earth, at the end of which the times of the Gentiles will be brought to a close. The latter half of this period will be the time of Jacob's trouble. When you see this Jacob's trouble and Israel's 70th week, you go back to the book of Daniel and other scriptures, and these are the words to describe how bad things are going to be. The latter half of this period of the time of Jacob's trouble, which our Lord called the Great Tribulation, we believe that universal righteousness will not be realized previous to the second coming of Christ, but that the world is day by day ripening for judgment and that the age will end with a fearful apostasy. That right there, that last couple of sentences, is our answer to are we post-millennialist? And the answer is no. Because we do not believe the world is getting better, better and better. We believe that it is heading toward more and more apostasy. That is rejection of God and rejection of the things of God. Now, when we deal with the tribulation, we do read about believers in the tribulation. Well, wait a minute. If all the believers were taken up at the rapture, at the beginning of the tribulation, where do the believers come from? Well, you know, some people are going to be a little confused. What happened to all the Christians? And some people are going to go grab their Bibles and go, "What, what, what just happened? Some people are going to pray to God and say, God, what just happened? And the implication is, that there are going to be Jews who are going to be converted, and I might add, um, our tour guide when we went to Israel in, uh, in May was very adamant. He was not a converted Jew. He was a Jew who recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. He didn't stop being a Jew. He became a Christian. So I'll use my words not very carefully. There are going to be Jews who are going to accept Jesus Christ, who are going to spread the gospel, and there's going to be believers during the tribulation because God is going to work even in difficult times to convince people of their sin 
and convince people of their need for a savior. They will acknowledge that Jesus is, in fact, the promised Messiah. So, universal righteousness will not be realized previous to the second coming. Now, there's a way of looking at that that produces despair. You know, I, I, I can't make anything better. Why work at making anything better? But you remember, we have been called to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. We have been called to tell people about the righteousness of God. We have been called, and there will be successes. Just don't get dismayed that the whole world isn't going to come around to the things of God anytime soon. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. What in the world does that mean? If we had time, and we don't, this is the point where you go to Revelations chapter 6 to 17, and you start looking at the tribulation period. And if you read it, it is full of pictures, metaphors, imagery of really, really bad stuff. You know, the whole idea of the four horsemen, that's where this comes from. You know, pestilence, war, famine, whatever the fourth one is. That's this period right here. We believe that the great tribulation in the earth will be climaxed by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth. When we talk about the second coming, this is it. Remember, he came to take us home. But that wasn't the coming to stay. That was to take us back home. be climaxed by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to earth as he went in person on the clouds of heaven and with power and great glory to introduce the millennial age, to bind Satan and place him in the abyss, to lift the curse which now rests upon the whole creation, to restore Israel to her own land and to give her the realization of God's covenant promises and to bring the whole world to the knowledge of God. That's a mouthful. But you know what? That's all really good stuff. Unless, of course, you're rejecting it. Let's go through this. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth as he went. You remember, Jesus was crucified. Three days later, he was raised from the dead. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven. And the people are standing around watching him go up. And an angel says, what, what you looking for? Don't you know that he's going to come back in the same way? Now, this is pretty simple. He went up in bodily form. He's coming back in 
bodily form. It's not a metaphor. It's not an image. It's not a ghost. It's not some cerebral idea of a second coming. It is a physical return of Christ to the earth. And once again, for all the arguments about post, uh, pre, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, for all those arguments, the real debate is do we really believe that Christ is returning? And the answer is yes. And if you wanted to have the rapture before this lesson is over, that's fine with me. To restore, <clears throat> to restore Israel to her own land. Why is that important? Remember, back to our discussion about dispensationalism. There are those, in fact, it's probably the majority of believers today, who think that God made promises to the nation of Israel, Christ came and called the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel rejected him, and God's done with the nation of Israel. And all of those promises that were made to the nation of Israel are now spiritualized and applied to the church. Israel was promised the land. Well, to us, that land is a metaphor or something for heaven or something or whatever. We don't believe that. We believe that God made promises to the nation of Israel, and God is going to fulfill those promises to the nation of Israel. Now, it's going to happen when the nation of Israel recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. We don't get Jesus out of this equation. That's why it says to restore Israel to her own land and give her the realization of God's covenant promises. This is a long passage. This is actually one of the passages that we talked about in the sermons. But I want to read it just because it's very, uh, well, interesting. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines, this is Matthew 24, 27 to 31. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation, we just talked about the tribulation, of those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Hmm. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. Throughout all, as far as I know, human history, there are people who come and say, I'm the returning Messiah. I am the Son of God. Here I am. Listen to me. And there are people who scratch their heads going, hmm, I wonder if they are or if they're not. Let me let you in on a little secret. When Christ returns the second time, there's not going to be any scratching of heads. Is that him? Is this the real thing? Should we look for something else? This isn't isn't impressive enough. When he returns the second time, the world will know it. 
In a month, we're going to celebrate Christmas, the birth of Christ. Christ was born in some insignificant little village, in some insignificant part of the world, and the majority of the world's population didn't even know it happened. In fact, almost all of the world's population didn't know it's happened. (coughs) That is not the way the second coming is going to be. It is going to be so evident that everyone will know. And notice what it says. The tribes of the earth will mourn. Why? Why? Because they'll know that they're on the wrong side. You and I, you know, can wonder, has it happened? Is it going to happen? When it happens, you will know it. That's why Jesus tells his disciples, there are going to be people who come and say, I'm the Messiah. No, I'm the Messiah. And he says, don't believe any of them. I've always found this interesting. There actually is a test given in the scripture to determine whether someone is a prophet or not. Okay? Everything that he says has to come true. If it doesn't come true, stone him. It's pretty simple. There was a test for the Messiah when he came the first time. Remember, John the Baptist sent his disciples, and Jesus says, tell them that the blind were made to see, the hungry were fed, the dead were right. Okay, here's the criteria. There's no test for the third time, because, the, the second coming, because everybody's going to know it. If you have to think about it, it's not it. Does that make sense? Please. This sound, the last sentence sounds an awful lot like the rapture. Uh, is this an additional rapture? No, this is gathering them on the earth. Okay. There's, That's not another rapture for the believers? Uh, no. He will gather his elect from the four winds, one from, from one end of heaven and to the other. Do you remember the chart that I had at the beginning? Christ returns, and who's coming with him? The believers. Yeah. So all of the believers on the earth will be gathered together. Because remember, there will be believers, and they're not going to be living in anywhere. Okay. The final paragraph, the eternal state. We believe that at death the spirits and souls of those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation pass immediately into his presence and there remain in conscious bliss until the resurrection of the glorified body when Christ comes for his own. Whereupon soul and body reunited shall be associated with him forever in glory. But the spirits and souls of the unbelieving remain after death conscious of condemnation and in misery until the final judgment of the great white throne at the close of the millennium, when soul and body reunited shall be cast in the lake of fire, not to be annihilated, but to be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This is the end of the story. That's why it's the last section of the doctrinal statement. 
What do we learn from this? First off, when we die, we are in the presence of God, or not. Okay? At the end of time, there is going to be a division. The Bible uses the metaphor of sheep and goats or this and that between those who spend eternity with God and those who spend eternity suffering punishment. And today, we, none of us, particularly like talking about hell. Hellfire and brimstone sermons are out of fashion in our modern day. But that does not change the reality. I had a discussion just this week with a guy, you know, do we really know what hell is going to be like? Well, if the imagery used in the scripture is not exactly right, it's because the reality is so much worse than the imagery. The imagery is fire and brimstone. This is how I understand it. We, the believers, will go to heaven. And in the description of heaven, there's all kinds of imagery of, you know, great feast, all this food you could eat. I won't get fat. It'd just be great. But that's not the main aspect of heaven. The main aspect of heaven is being in the presence of God. People ask, what are we going to do in heaven for all eternity. Aren't we going to get bored? Well, just look at it this way. There's an infinite God, and there's you with your finite brain, and every day for eternity, you learn something new about God, and you go, wow, that's cool. And the next day, you learn something about God, and you go, wow, that's cool. And the next day, and the next day, now, that's my way of describing it, because we're not sure there's days in heaven, but that's a different story, what the passage of time means. Conversely, what is hell? It is the removal of the, the, of the known presence of God in the lives of people. And you think, wow, that sounds great. You're an unbeliever. You can do anything you want. I am convinced that the unbelievers and even us as believers do not fully appreciate what the presence of God in our world does for us. Why don't we collapse in despair at every minor thing? Because God gives us hope. What if all of that was removed? That is hell. The removal of the presence of God, or at least the perception, understanding of the presence of God. There is going to be judgment. Notice the word in here, uh, when soul and body return, reunited, shall be cast into the lake of fire, not to be annihilated. There is a train of thought called annihilationism. The believers go to heaven and the unbelievers just cease to exist. No pain, no suffering, just non-existence. And that sounds so much kinder, but it's not really what the Scripture teaches us. I might also add that there is a belief called universalism that teaches that eventually God's going to bring everybody into heaven. Because what else would a loving God do? 
Well, a loving and righteous and just God is not going to force people into his presence who have spent all their lives rejecting him. So, just a couple of verses. We are running out of time. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, this is the thief on the cross, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I am pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul is struggling with, do I want to die or do I want to go home? And you know what? I think he'd rather go home. But you know what? God's given him something to do, and he's okay with that too. This is what it means to live a life in the reality of, in the mindset of the reality of heaven. So, as I said, the last little sentence, if you're looking at your doctrinal statement, says the doctrinal statement, this doctrinal statement is the complete and unalterated doctrinal statement of Dallas Theological Seminary. That is everything above that line. Next week, we do have two paragraphs left, and we will talk about that. One will be about marriage, and one will be about human sexuality. Conclusions. Christ will return bodily to the earth. I don't care whether you're a pre, post, mid, trib, ob, millennial, whatever. Christ is going to return. Believers will spend eternity with God. Those who have rejected the gospel will suffer punishment. And finally, as the last two sermons said, we need to be prepared. It isn't an eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you're going to end up in heaven. It's be prepared, be caught doing what you ought to be doing when Christ returns. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you will return. Thank you for the hope that you have given us. Thank you that you will keep your promises. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.